Good morning, everyone. My name is Seth Hahn, and I have the pleasure of reading scripture for you this morning, which comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect, neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Seth. Man, what a voice on that kid, huh? Good night. <laughs> uh, and he's not even interested in doing radio, which is really a shame. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Dave Hahn. It is really great to see you as always, and we are very glad that you have joined us in worship. And it is my privilege today to be able to open God's word with and for you. So when people don't know my name or they forget it, one of the greetings that I often get is, hey, big guy often followed up with a question like, you play football in high school? And what's funny to me about all of that is that none of those folks know how small I was back in high school. When I graduated eighth grade, I was five foot three inches tall. When I graduated high school, I was five foot eight, about 140 pounds. No right-minded football team would have somebody that size. Now, my dad is six foot five inches, my mom is five foot three inches, so it could have gone either way for me, really. Um, I obviously didn't stay five foot eight. Inside of three months after having graduated from high school, when I started college, I was six foot, and by the time I finished my freshman year, I was six foot three, which is what I am today. I was a high schooler, and really as a kid, I was relatively short, and if I'm honest with you, I really didn't want to be. But as we are all aware, how our physical body grows, certainly height-wise, is out of our control. God alone determines how tall or how short we will be. The same way that he determines what color our eyes will be, or what color our hair will be, or whether or not we'll get to keep it as we get older. Now, of course, not everyone accepts how God has built them. That's why we have plastic surgery and hair dyes and hair transplants and curling irons and colored contact lenses. And there are both similarities and differences to these truths and these ideas in our spiritual lives. In the same way that God has gifted us physically speaking, he has gifted each of us spiritually as well. And his gifts are given for the benefit of the church. But let's say that we don't like our physical or spiritual gifts, the gifts that God has given. If you don't like your height, what recourse do you have? You know, you can wear like big raised up shoes, or if you think you're too tall, you can wear flattened shoes, that's about it. But if you don't like your spiritual gifts, or you wish that you had different ones, 
What then? Jealousy or envy? Forcing your way into a ministry that God doesn't intend for you because you want that gift. Or maybe you just bury your gifts and you don't use them at all. Disciples Church, what would it look like if instead of all that, we grabbed hold of the gospel and embraced our God-given gifts and roles and responsibilities, controlled what we can control, grew in all the ways that we can grow, and we let all the stuff that we can't change or fix about ourselves or other people to God. As a way of helping Timothy deal with the false teaching going on in Ephesus, Paul reminded Timothy of who he was, how he had been gifted, and what truly mattered in life and in doctrine. Then having said all that, Paul encouraged him to keep on keeping on, both for his own sake and for the sake of others to the glory of God. And his charge to us and his encouragement for us is the same. Let's look again at verse 11. It says, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. Well, what things is Paul referring to? He's referring to the things that he had been instructing Timothy to throughout this letter, specifically in verses 6 through 10 which Jonathan talked about last week. First, to remain anchored in God's word and the good doctrine that comes from it. That's from verse 6. Second, to avoid teaching irreverent, silly, and mythical things that are devoid of the gospel. That's verse 7. Friends, the only way to recognize the counterfeit is to be deeply familiar with the authentic. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, revealed to us in God's word by his spirit is real and it is true and it is authentic. Whereas anything outside of that gospel, including false teaching and irreverent silly myths that Paul is talking about, are counterfeit. Our world is looking within itself for temporal solutions to eternal problems. As though this world is all there is, and it is of the utmost importance. And every man, woman, and child longs for something that this world cannot give them. We try to satisfy our longings with ideologies or people and things that will eventually disappoint or disappear. In Ephesus, the myth of the day was asceticism. The belief that self-denial was the key to a right relationship with God and a happy life in the here and now. But the gospel encourages gratitude and gladness and indulgence in both God himself and the good gifts that he has given, more so than it does encourage prohibition. That's what Paul means by godliness in verses 7 and 8. Friends, our biggest problems come from within ourselves, but the solutions do not. The solution 
comes from outside of us. Found in the one who made us and knows better what we need than we do. Remain anchored in God's word and the good doctrine that comes from it. Avoid teaching irreverent, silly, and mythical things devoid of the gospel. And thirdly, above all, Paul says, set your hope on the living God. The God who makes and sustains all things and cares intimately for all that he has made, especially those who are made in his image. Do you know, my friends, that it is Christians alone who profess faith in a living God? We alone. Every other religion's central figure is dead and has remained so. But not Jesus. Jesus Christ came into the world that he made to take on our humanity, to die the death that was reserved for you and me, to rise again that he might reign and rule with his Father forever and ever, while at the same time offering us his very own resurrected and eternal life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Word of God lays out over and over and over again. And it is this gospel that the Spirit of God testifies to. And it is these same things that we as the church are commanded to teach. Certainly pastors and elders, certainly. But really all those who have found their salvation in this gospel. As ministers of the gospel, preachers and proclaimers of God's truth revealed in his son, we must never, ever move past the gospel as revealed in the word of God, whether it be from behind a pulpit or in our workplaces or in our homes. Christ and his gospel must be central in all we do, all we say, and all we think as Christians. And when he is not... Be assured that something else, something without the ability to save and restore, will be. When Christ is not central, something else will be. Something that cannot save and something that cannot restore. And practically, that means that our view or our opinion on something cannot and should not be primary in our own mind or in the mind of others. What we think about any hot-button issue of the day is really insignificant. What is of greatest significance is what God says and what God thinks. That's what matters. So when we enter into discussions about anything with others, let us do so with the Word of God as our guide and the ultimate authority, because that's the only place that authority exists. Let it be the word of God that people reject, not us or our opinion. And understand, my friends, that it is our responsibility to tell people. It is not our responsibility to change someone's mind or transform them. Moral transformation outside of the life-saving and heart-regenerating work of Christ is pointless, and it will not last. It won't last. Continuing in verse 12, 
Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So in Ephesus, Timothy was surrounded by older and more seasoned believers than himself. And Paul wanted to help him combat any opposition that he might receive from others because of his youth. Now the word youth, as it is used here, could mean someone as old as 40. Not the age that most of us think about when we read this text and we hear the word youth. I guess youth is a relative idea, so rejoice. (laughs) Most scholars believe that Timothy was about 30 and that Paul was about 70 at this time of writing. And I think that this teaching is meaningful even beyond addressing Timothy's physical maturity. God is letting you and I know through Paul that while people can and will find all kinds of reasons to look down on us, God himself does not look at us in the same way. People can find all kinds of reasons to cast us aside, to look down on us, but that's not how God sees us. We have all been fearfully and wonderfully made. And for all our differences and for all our distinctives, what matters to God is the heart. A heart that wants what he wants and says yes to whatever he asks. That's what matters to God. Friends, age doesn't always mean wisdom. And youth doesn't always mean ingenuity. Education doesn't always mean the most equipped and different doesn't mean useless. So whatever it is that you think may disqualify you from being used by God in powerful ways, look hard at the history of who God has historically chosen and be encouraged I don't know where we get this idea that God is looking for rock stars. God goes out of his way to let us know that his power is sufficient to make anyone useful and mighty in his kingdom. He has and he will and he does use anyone. Almost always the unlikely. As one obvious object, listen, let me point out that a big, bald, tattooed guy with earrings is behind the pulpit and having the face mic on today. I'm not the most obvious candidate for pastor. It may have taken you, if we're honest, a little bit to get used to me, but I think that most of you have, right? And some of you may even like me, all by the grace of God. (laughs) Uh, So how was... Timothy to keep people from despising him for his perceived insufficiencies? Well, by being an example of Christian maturity in what he said and in what he did, which flowed from his love for and faith in God and his love for others. He was an example of Christian maturity and it flowed from his faith and love for God and his love for others. And Paul was saying essentially live in such a way that your spiritual maturity exceeds that of your physical maturity. So whatever your physical 
insufficiencies. Let your spiritual sufficiencies block those things out. Let people see that what you preach and what you believe is actually who you are. And it's actually what's going on within. By giving them an up-close and personal look at how you live. Christian, we are to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Because it is hard to despise those who walk the walk of Christianity, no matter what external objections we may have. Because when we see someone walking the walk, we see Christ in them. Moving on to verse 13. Paul writes, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Read Scripture. Explain Scripture and apply Scripture. That's what Timothy was to devote himself to. And it's what every pastor and elder today needs to devote themselves to as well. But as we talked about, not just elders and pastors. Every believer's goal should be consistency in reading the Bible and a growth in their ability to be able to explain it and apply it. By sitting alone with God and His Word, by studying it with other believers, and by sharing it with those who have not heard or understood, both publicly and in our private lives. In Paul and Timothy's day, the Word of God in letters like these were read publicly in synagogues. Here at Disciples Church, every week Jonathan or I invite one of you to come up and ask folks to stand with you as you publicly read God's Word every week. And then Jonathan or I attempt to explain what those words mean as we believe God has revealed it to us and how to apply it to your daily lives. And we do all of that because it is infinitely more important for you to hear what God has to say than what we have to say. It is infinitely more important for you to hear what God has to say than what we have to say. Anything we have to say. If everything else that we might do in a worship service falls flat, the Bible promises that God's word will always do its job and never return to him void. That is the promise. So declare it publicly and trust that God's word is going to do what he said it will always do. The question, church, is do we believe that? Do we believe that God's word is sufficient and will not return void to him? I mean, how many churches are using rock bands and lights and fog and elaborate stage setups and auditorium-style seating because they just don't believe that Jesus and his words are enough to draw or save or transform? Now, we can't afford any of those bells and whistles here at Disciples Church. So we don't really have a choice. <laughs> but, but, if we did have the choice, and we did decide to do any of those things, and we might, let it not be because we no longer believe in the power and the sufficiency of God's living word and the power of his spirit 
to take those words into the hearts and the minds of those who hear it. To be honest, uh, and for those of you who know me, this won't surprise you, I am not a big fan of Christian pop culture, music and film and TV and books. A lot of it feels cheesy to me. It's just personal opinion, but some of it is good. For instance, I, I do listen to worship music every day in my personal time with God, but my song library is probably less than 70 songs. I do like a handful of movies and TV shows about Jesus and his gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, the Passion of the Christ. There's this new show called The Chosen that I really enjoy. And I also have great affection for many nonfiction books that have been written about Christ himself and his gospel. But if those songs and shows and movies and books do not stir me to look more deeply into Scripture itself so that I might know Jesus better and understand his message and apply it to my life and to the lives of others, have I not only been entertained at best or maybe even stirred towards idolatry at worst in that I have allowed those things to supersede the one that those things point to? Songs and books and movies and shows and all that stuff is meant to point us to Christ himself. The most elaborate churches that you walk into are meant to stir our affections for God himself, not for that building. Pop culture about Jesus is no substitute for personally knowing and loving Jesus through his word and by his spirit. And man's interpretation of God will always be a poor substitute for God himself. Always. So I've been to church services where a pastor got up and he spent more time reading from the Velveteen Rabbit or showing a funny video that he found on YouTube than they did in the Word of God. Now, I'm not capping the Velveteen Rabbit or YouTube because there's nothing wrong with beloved books or funny or poignant videos, but the ideas and the words within them are not the living words of the living God. Only about the Bible can we make such a claim. And again, there is simply no substitute for it. So if we are to use the things of this world, and with wisdom, we certainly can. We certainly can. Let them, whatever those things are, lead us and our hearers into the deeper truths of God found within Scripture itself. Let our examples, let our illustrations, let these stories lead people to the greater truths found in Scripture about God himself. And with several easy-to-read translation, countless Bible apps, and many methods to read or listen to God's Word, there is no good reason not to spend time in it. Continuing in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So a few weeks ago and even earlier today, we talked about giftedness and roles and responsibilities, specifically for elders and deacons, but really for every believer. 
And what gifts, roles, and responsibilities all have in common is this. It is God who grants each of them by his grace and for his purposes. Every gift, every role, every responsibility is a gift that is given to you by God, by his grace, for his purposes. Timothy was given the gift of being a pastor and an elder, and at this time, those gifts were to be used within and for the church in Ephesus. And Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy did not neglect the gift that he was given. Gifting that was affirmed by the Ephesian church and those who knew him best, by men who had prophesied and laid hands on him in prayer. And just as Timothy was gifted in a certain way for a certain time, so too are you and me. We each have roles and responsibilities which coincide with our unique giftings. And God, by his spirit, in according with our propensity towards certain things, affirmed by others, reveals to you and I what those gifts are. The reason that you have a propensity towards certain things and the reason that other people recognize those things in you and are blessed by those things in you is God-breathed. And God gives us opportunities to use those gifts in his kingdom for his purposes. The question is, is are we ready and are we willing to use them? to take on those roles and responsibilities as God gives us opportunity. And if not, what is standing in your way? What's standing in your way? Maybe you believe yourself to be better than a certain role, that you aspire to greater things than what God has for you at that moment or based on what is needed. And so you sit back and you wait until a worthy opportunity comes along. Or conversely, you might believe yourself to be ill-equipped, or maybe you're too busy for the opportunity that God has put before you. But in both cases, have you not made it about you rather than about God? Whether you think you're too good for it or whether you think you're ill-equipped for it, haven't you made it about you and it's not about God? Is it not God who calls and who sends and equips? Is God the giver of insignificant gifts or the assigner of inconsequential roles? Or does he fail to equip those that he calls and sends? Friends, God is looking for us to recognize that all our gifts are from him and for him. And he wants us to be available to him when he asks us to use those gifts for his glory. And neither the pride nor the fear that you may feel are from him. So disciples, church, do not neglect what he has given you. Finishing up in verse 15 and 16. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy was leading a church 
that had seen its share of false teaching and godless living. And Paul had watched men that he knew and that he had preached to fall prey to the schemes of this world and its ruler, and he did not want to see Timothy go down that same road. Parents resonate deeply with this idea. Leaders understand well where Paul is coming from, and anyone who has ever loved and cared about someone else knows this concern for themselves. Because, friends, this world is sinful and it is dangerous, and Satan, its ruler, is looking for opportunities to trip us up and lead both us and others away from Jesus. He would look for any opportunity. And so Paul finishes with four what's and two so what's for Timothy to obey. And the first two of the four what's are practice these things and immerse yourself in them. The word practice here can also be translated as meditate. And I know that Christians generally do not like that word because we're scared of the idea of meditation because we associate it with an emptying of our mind, the kind of emptying of our mind that is found in Eastern religions. But Paul is not referring to the emptying of one's mind. He's talking about something that's quite the opposite. He is talking about immersion and filling one's life in mind with God and his word. Not an emptying of oneself, but a filling of oneself with God and his word. Paul is saying in verse 15, the Christ life, leading and pastoring, is not just your job, Timothy. It is your whole life. You're a disciple, pastor, leader, and teacher, regardless of your official title or position. So drink deep of God and live accordingly. Drink deep of God and live accordingly. And similarly, being a Christian is not just a part of your life, Disciples Church. It is your life. It is the core of your identity and mine. Not just a spoke on the wheel, but the wheel itself. And God wants us to give ourselves to him entirely. Nothing held back. So the question is, is that where you are? And if it's not, is that where you want to be? The second two of the four what's are found in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching and be persistent. Here we get back to the essence of Paul's message to Timothy. Good doctrine and godly living. Good doctrine and godly living. What one believes and how that belief works itself out in one's life. Because how we live is direct evidence of our doctrine. A person can say that they believe something, but if they persistently live in direct opposition to that profession, it's fair to question whether or not they truly believe it at all. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to have good doctrine, to live a life born of that doctrine, and to teach others to believe and do the same. That's called 
discipleship. Disciples, church. That's called discipleship. And it's the first of the so what's from verses 15 and 16. Why practice and why immerse? Why keep a close watch and why persist? So that all may see your progress. That's verse 15. That's why you do these things. It is disciples of Jesus Christ that know and grow in his salvation and proclaim it to others in word and deed. The second so what found in verse 15 and 16 is connected to this first one because it is not enough that people see us grow in our faith, love, and knowledge of Jesus Christ because admiration and impressing others is not the point. The point of our growth in Christ is the subject of our second so what and it is a life spent working out our own salvation and leading others to that same saving knowledge of Jesus. A life spent working out our own salvation and leading others to that same saving knowledge of Jesus. Friends, God uses us to lead others to salvation through the proclamation of God's word and then living it out. The Bible that people read and the Bible that people see. The Bible people read and the Bible that people see. In our part of the world, Bibles are, for the most part, plentiful and free. So we are without excuse if we don't read it or know what it says. Certainly, we can avail ourselves of helps as we look into Scripture, whether it be sermons or study guides or in-home Bible studies or things like that, but we need to first be in it. And in doing so consistently, God reveals its meaning to us. So before you read it, ask God for wisdom and revelation. He delights in that prayer and will surely give it. He will surely give it. Friends, the Word of God is one story about God's relentless and loving pursuit of mankind, his greatest creation and his most prized possession. And its center point is the life, death, and resurrection of his only son, Jesus Christ, the living word. That salvation is found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Everything before Jesus points to his coming and everything after Jesus points back to his having been here and proclaim his future return. That is the Bible that people read. That's the story of the Bible that people read. But what about the Bible that people see? There's an old Christian saying that goes, be careful how you live. You might be the only Bible some person ever reads. You've heard that? Or how about the infamous St. Francis of Assisi quote that reads, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That doesn't mean that we don't preach the word. But it means that there is a Bible that people are going to read and hear, and there is going to be a Bible that people see. But both are important. These are not legalistic or work-based ideas. 
what those authors are getting at is that faith is made evident through works, not the other way around. Good works does not necessarily imply or lead to faith. But faith in Christ will always produce good works. So Disciples Church, do people see Jesus in you? Because if you're a Christian, in you is where he is. We only need to trust and abide in him and allow his life to flow in us and through us. Like a shoot on a tree, Christ's life flows into us, growth happens, and the fruit of the Christian life is produced. No one marvels at a branch from a tree that bears leaves or fruit because we recognize that there is life in that tree and that life inevitably is going to flow into the branches that are attached to it. And so it is with the Christian life. But where there is no fruit and where there is no growth, it is reasonable to question if there has ever been life there in the first place. So on the side of our basement door at home, we have a makeshift growth chart for Seth. We've been using it ever since he was able to be held up or stand on his own. There are a couple of marks for Sheila and I as well, as, as well as some of his buddies. And what's fun about growth charts like that is it provides clear evidence that he is, in fact, growing up. We can see his progress from month to month. We can see his progress from year to year. And his friends are able to see how they compare to one another. Some of Seth's buddies, as a, for instance, are as tall as he was two or three years ago. None of them are quite as tall as me yet. I'm coming, I'm sure. So as we're all aware, growth is hard to see in a short span of time. And it's even harder to see in ourselves. That's why we need other things and other people to help us see our growth. Sometimes it's in growth charts, either on the side of a door or otherwise. Sometimes it's in the form of scales, right, when we're talking about the other number that matters. Sometimes it's in the form of tighter shirts, shorter pants, shoes that don't feel right anymore. When we're measuring Seth or his buddies, what we do is we stand them up against the door. We set a marker across the top of their heads like this. And then we kind of make a line. You hold your head up straight and all that. And then we stand back and we see what kind of growth there has been. Because they don't and really can't measure themselves. It's a hard thing to do that. And it is the same in our spiritual lives. Just not standing up against the door with a marker. God in his providence, my friends, has given us pastors who are meant to love us and know us and teach us and equip us. He has given us fellow believers to live life alongside. And he has given his spirit which confirms our sonship and our growth in him. And all of these gifts are meant for our own growth 
and our own edification. We need people who know us and who love us enough to challenge our immaturities and to walk alongside us in spite of them. We also need people to encourage us when we've added a new notch to the basement door of our spiritual lives. But it takes gospel community, my friends. It takes being with one another and knowing one another. God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. He has not left you or I wanting. We simply need to receive, walk in, and grow in what he has already given. So avail yourself of God's good gifts of salvation found in his son, his word, his spirit, and his body, the church, as it has been revealed in God's word and made evident by good doctrine and godly living. Then trust him to finish what he has already begun in you. One day, Sheila and I will make the final mark on the door for Seth. He'll be as tall as he's going to get. And there's a final mark for Christians, too. But we won't see it in this life. We never arrive in this life. We will only reach our full maturity, the final mark on the door, when God frees us from this life and this body and brings us to where he is and where he will be forevermore. So until that day, my friends, practice his gospel. Immerse yourself in his gospel. Teach his gospel and persist in his gospel for your sake for the sake of those around you, and above all, for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have given us your son as the ultimate gesture of love and of sacrifice. Apart from the cross of Christ, we would not know what love is. Apart from Christ's resurrection, we would not know what life truly is. And apart from the revelation of these things in your word and by your spirit, we would have remained spiritually dead and lost forever. But that is not where we are if we know Jesus. And it is not where those who do not know Jesus need to remain. Help us, O oh God, to know your word, to live according to it, and to replica replicate those things in others by your grace and in your power. Make us mindful of the counterfeit and cause us to love the truth so deeply that we would never depart from it or you. Let us trust and abide in you for our spiritual maturity, believing that you are faithful to complete what you have begun in us. May we embrace all the gifts that you have given, saying yes when you ask us to use them and to depend on you to grow us in them even as you indwell us. While this world has a message of its own, it has no hope outside of you. In both word and deed, help us to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost that they might be saved and to declare it to the found that they might not forget and have hope. 
In Christ alone, our hope is found, and he is ours forevermore. Amen.